there's powers that be, whether you want to call it the Matrix. I think the Matrix is a more convenient term because it's been popularized, you know, since the movie with Keanu Reeves, since Andrew Tate got so popular. So I think the conversation around there's things going on out there that you don't see and that you don't control can be easily distilled down to the Matrix. Rich, does the world now hate successful men? I think the world hates successful white men. <laughs> Unless you're an African-American like Elon Musk, then you seem to be doing all right. <laughs> Why do you think the, white, uh, the world hates successful men? I don't know. Uh, I think that there's a victim mindset, and for you to have a victim mindset, you have to have an oppressor. And, uh, you know, successful guys are great uh, targets for that. So they seem to put crosshairs on, on that and they enjoy uh, running lives in their victim mindset. And it's, it's just not for me, but I see a lot of it. I see a lot of it going on everywhere. People don't like accountability. They don't seem to like ownership. And it's a lot easier to, to point at somebody that's doing the work than to do it yourself and complain about them or find reasons why you don't like them, isn't it? Do you think then that if the world is more hating successful men, it's only going to make successful men more successful? You know, that's interesting because I've seen I've seen a line in the sand that they've drawn um, here in Canada anyway, where they've taxed successful people to the point where they're starting to pack up and leave. They've had enough of the uh, the wokeness. They've had enough of the high taxation rates. the The highest tax rate, the, the highest income tax rate here that you're going to pay is about fifty four percent of your income. Um, and especially during the last uh, few years, during the uh, beer bug or the scamdemic, whatever it is that you want to call it, we saw a lot of um, my fellow Canadian entrepreneurs who were locked down. I think we had the most severe lockdowns with the exception of maybe New Zealand and, and Australia. They just packed up and they went elsewhere. They went down to the Caribbean, they went down to Mexico, and uh, they were fortunate enough to have location independent businesses that they could run from anywhere in the world. Uh, families that were either willing to move with them or they made accommodations for it and they've set up elsewhere. And that just seems to be what the government is pushing successful people to do now because, uh, you know, there's that mantra to go where you're treated better, isn't it? Do you think that will last or do you think that in the end these governments will realise they need these creators, entrepreneurs, providers, employers and producers and then they'll start to reduce the tax liabilities, increase the tax breaks and bring them all back again. Maybe they'll have to, wouldn't they? No, I don't think so. I don't think they understand the gravity of what they're doing and the direction that they're going. It's uh, Their strategy seems to be, let's boil the frog really slowly so it doesn't see itself being boiled. And there's enough guys that are seeing it happen that they're picking up and leaving and they're moving their lives, their finances, their assets to places that are more favorable. I don't think that you can turn back the clock on taxation. They've never done it in the past anyway. And I think that history is the best indicator of what they're going to be doing in the future. They've always increased tax rates. There's been promises to lower them. But even if they do, it's often governments that will say, well, we'll just freeze this or we'll cut this back temporarily for a few months and then it's back up again at some point later on with the next government that's uh, sitting in the house. But if they push out all the 
producers, innovators, creators, movers and shakers. There's no one left to make anything, build anything, solve anything. They'll just do it elsewhere. They're, you know, we live, you know, we live on a planet. We don't live in a country. So, you know, you can still sell your goods and services, your information products from somewhere else in the world. You still access people, you know, with the internet. It's just you've decided to pick up and put your butt somewhere else and you live in that place now, but you still offer it to the same consumer base. So there's that flexibility and freedom, but who knows what they're gonna do with that. I mean, they don't they don't seem to understand what they're doing, do they? They don't seem to understand the implications of heavy taxation and onerous policies that limit your ability to maneuver because they just don't get entrepreneurs. Um, our prime minister here anyway doesn't seem to get entrepreneurs, you know, in the sense where they understand that most of the jobs are created by new businesses. Uh, most of the taxation is created by these entrepreneurs, these startups, these small business owners that are running the seven and eight figures. We all know the large organizations don't pay much, if anything, in taxes. Apple's hoarding tens of mil millions of dollars. I don't even know what the total count is at this stage, but it's a lot of money in it. And they're just not paying into the tax system. It's it's small entrepreneurs and, and startups that are making the contributions. So, you know, when you get guys like Trudeau st stepping up and standing up and saying things like, uh, entrepreneurs are finding ways to avoid paying taxes and we have to close more loopholes on them. I'd really like to know where these loopholes are so I can take advantage of them myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we've seen many of these loopholes over the years removed, taken away, like um, interest payment relief on properties and all sorts. There's a big attack on landlords. Why don't they understand what they're doing, Rich? Because people still pay, still continue to pay the taxes. They still continue to, uh, you know, to tolerate the abuse. Yeah. You don't notice that you're being abused if it happens slowly and gently and lightly over time. It's just over my lifetime, I've seen it over several decades. It's just gotten worse and worse. You know, somebody new that just starts, they don't notice that happening. Mm. Do you think you'll ever leave, move? Absolutely. Yeah, I've got, I've got plans to set up my life elsewhere. Uh, I've got things anchoring me here right now. So it's, it's a, it's a next project for me to sort of deal with in the next few years. Mm. Mm. Um, what is a real man, Rich? <laughs> what is a what man? Is a man? It, is a it is a biological male, male that is an, an adult. In the war on masculinity, what is a real man? Well, if you, well, if you, well, if you, if you ask, ask, it depends what side you ask. You ask. Right? I mean, I mean, if you, you ask, ask the side, side that's, that's waging, waging the war on masculinity, masculinity they're going to tell you that anything that is conventionally masculine is potentially or is toxic, isn't it? But it's funny, isn't it, though, that if there's a war or there's a fire or there's policing that's required or you need something, a guy that's big and strong that they call a conventionally masculine man to come and deal with those things, to put out the fires, to deal with the bad guys, to, to go to the wars. wars. And, and you know, deal with the evil in the, the world. world. But anytime, anytime we, have, we peace have peace and calm, calm in society, in society if you don't you like don't something or the way, the way that it's going for you, it's you, very it's easy very to say, that guy over guy there, there, he's toxic masculinity. masculinity. Please, Please, you know, you know don't, don't scare, scare me. me. I feel, I feel very uncomfortable in your presence. There is a there is a war on masculinity today. It's it's a it's a feature. It's a function of feminism continuing into an area that looks like a supremacy movement to me. 
I don't think there's any area. I mean, you could ask anybody, whether it's a woman or a visible minority, you know, what what are your disadvantages in life today? You know, what what is it that that white person over there can do that or that white male over there can do that you can't do as a woman or as a woman of color, for example? And they really struggle to find things, don't they? So I don't think there's any difference in the world today as far as inequalities, especially in modern Western worlds. Some people would even argue that the advantages have tilted in the favor of women, you know, at this stage, especially in areas like family law, right? Uh, if you don't believe me, ask anybody that's been divorced in a Western country and find out how fairly the father gets treated versus the mother. There is a strong inequality that plays in the mother's favor. So... It seems, it seems like, like it's gotten to a point where it's now moving into a position of a supremacy movement where it's looking for the subjugation and the servitude of men and the continuous apologies of men. We see this all the time on mainstream media and on uh, all these other different platforms where you know men are, are, are apologizing or kissing the feet of, of people for sins that don't even exist anymore. Do you think this is because we've had to such a good amount of time, decades maybe, of good times. And you know the whole adage, good times creates weak people. Yeah. Um, and weak people create hard times and hard times create strong people. Do you think that's part of it? Do you think lockdown was part of it? What are your thoughts on why we are where we're at? Well, I don't think it's any question that we live in a very peaceful time. And human beings are not very peaceful as a species, are we? I've seen, I've seen plotted infographics uh, over tens of thousands of years that have documented conflict and wars throughout history. Um, and if you can just picture a screen with a bunch of pepper dots off to the left and in recent time off to the right, there's a lot fewer of them. Or if they do appear, they're slightly larger, like you'd see a World War I or a World, World War II. But throughout history, we've we really like wars, you know, as a species, and we've been at conflict pretty much throughout history. We live in a very calm time. Uh, we have easy access to plentiful calories going to any store. We have easy access to transport anywhere in the world. We have easy access to healthcare, you know, in most places in the world. So safe, safe, clean water. You know, you don't have to worry about turning on your faucet and making yourself a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and getting uh, some kind of intestinal disease. Uh, we live in very clean and safe times, and that and that gives people other, other things, things to do with their with times. times. And, and unfortunately, unfortunately when, when you've been dealing, dealing with decades of the softening of society, of society the weakening, weakening of, of the Western, Western male, male, you know, if you will, and, and the encouragement of women, of women to become more like men. Like, like we live in a time now where women are are told that they don't need a man; they can do anything a man can do, if not better. And men are incompetent, they're bumbling fools and idiots. I mean, if you watch any of the Hollywood shows or sitcoms that I did growing up, um, Family Ties, The Cosby Show, Home Improvement, the father in the show was always portrayed as a bumbling moron, and the, and the mother was the savior of the household. She was the hero. Um, we're just at that place in time where I think that once you see all these things and you start to see the code in the matrix and you understand what's going on, it's, it's, it's a, a slow, progressive, decade-upon-decade process of the softening and the weakening of strong Western males. I think the lockdown was a nice test of all that. They wanted to see how far they could go, clearly, because in hindsight, now that we've seen most of the evidence, 
Um, the experimental jab was neither safe nor effective. The requirement for face coverings was neither safe nor effective. Uh, the death rate, you know, or the mortality rate of the COVID virus was very, very low. It, basically the same as a common cold, right? But we stood on our dots, we wore the masks, we took the vaccinations, and we did everything that we were told to do, didn't we? But 70% of the population did all that. And there was a small percentage of the population that said, no, it's okay, I'm fine. I mean, I'll stay in my house, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll stand on your dots so I can get my groceries and I'll do those things. But there's a small percentage of the population that doesn't want to comply with those things. So yeah, there, there's, there's certainly something going on out there, isn't there? Mm. And you said the code in the matrix. Um, do, do you subscribe to this? That, like Andrew Tate says, there's a matrix that's controlling us. Do you subscribe to that? There's, there's powers that be. Whether you want to call it the matrix, I think the matrix is a more convenient term because it's been popularized, you know, since the movie with Keanu Reeves, since Andrew Tate got so popular. So I think the the, the conversation around there's things going on out there that you don't see and that you don't control can be easily distilled down to the matrix. Sure, let's use that term. I think that's a convenient, easy term for everybody to understand. And do you think that's good or bad for humanity? Depends. Do you want to conform and comply? And when the state says jump, you respond with how high? Are you happy with eating bugs? Are you happy with having a social credit score? Then you're going to say it's good for society. But if you value sovereignty, if you value independence, if you value an ability to maneuver, if you value um, you know, control in your life, then you're going to say no. Right? I mean, if you look at the way that society votes, if you look at the way that culture and most Western uh, populations, you know, these, these demographics, they're, they're voting for more of the control. They're not voting for more freedom and independence and sovereignty and ownership over their lives, right? They're voting to invite the state and the government in every aspect of their life whenever possible. And again, they're not doing it intentionally. They're not put, raising their hand and saying, right, I want to get up in the morning and have the government know everything about me, right? It just, it just happens to be that they're falling for those parties for the next election, and that's who they cast their vote for. Some would say maybe they're not voting. You know, there's a lot of arguments between whether or not Biden or Trump was the elected president of the United States. Who cares? But that's who they're running with right now. Look who's Canada, you know, who's Canada's prime minister. Look who's running in the UK. Look who's running in France. You go all around the Western countries and the same thing's happening everywhere. So as an entrepreneur, Rich, have you found it easier or harder in these times to um, grow your business and make money? It's never been easier to grow a business and make money than it is today. So don't listen to anybody that says, oh, it's too hard. There's only so much money out there. All the rich, evil people have taken it all. And, you know, you'll never get any because they're because they're horrible. There's money traveling through the Internet right now. All you have to do is do is offer some value and reach out and grab some. OK, so that's true. But we live in a time where we have more control than ever before. Right. Uh, if you live in the States or even in certain places, um, even in Canada, you're going to find that you can't, you don't have the freedom to run a business the way that you would have run a business 40, 50 years ago. They keep adding new laws, new legislations, there's new penalties. There's, there's always something new that they want to infuse into your business life. So there's less sovereignty, there's less independence, there's less control over your business than what we had 50 years ago. 
But on the upside of it, it's never been easier to start a business because you don't need to have a storefront. You don't need bricks and mortar. All you need is an internet connection and the ability to offer value to people. And you can do that from literally anywhere in the world. And have you evolved your business through um, this time? You know, maybe take us back to how your business looked when you started it and how it's evolved now. So in 20, so in 2003, I got a package in the collection industry that I worked at here in Canada. I work, I work for Canada's largest collection agency. Uh, that's where I learned that you get hired for your resume, but you get fired because of fit in the, in the corporation. So they let me go. They gave me a few, a few dollars and they sent me home. That's when I started up uh, Total Debt Freedom, which became Canada's largest, most successful debt settlement company. We eliminated over a quarter billion dollars of consumer credit card debt. So to the point of business, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to get off the ground today. But you will find that as you grow the business, as you get more influence, as you become known, and as you have more impact, uh, companies that oppose you or that might see you as, as competition will start to do things to eliminate you or to make it harder for you to run your business. Um, with what I was doing, we were so successful at, at saving money for people with their credit card debt and getting them out of debt rapidly without the damage of bankruptcy or an insolvency. They started to uh, essentially petition the, uh, the policymakers. This was the banks and the credit card companies. They started to petition the, the policymakers to change the laws to make it difficult to earn money or to delay the first revenue event. So. There's a lot of complex things that uh, happened, but it was it was a it was a, a great opportunity, and I'm glad I had the, the the time in the business. I've I've done the earnout buyout now. My brother runs it, and I essentially run a business today that's a company of one. So I can run this business from anywhere in the world. Uh, I mostly sell information or or content. You know, if you look at my YouTube channel, you know, my books, my podcast, stuff like that. Um, so I could essentially, if I wanted to, I could get a sailboat and put a Starlink on it and I could broadcast from the middle of the Pacific ocean on my way to Fiji. It's entirely possible that you can do that today. So I'm grateful for those opportunities. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that entrepreneurs have to be good at. They have to be good at, at problem solving and getting these issues out of the way so they can get to the goals. How did you traverse into, let's call it being a creator? Because obviously you've got your entrepreneurs and cars YouTube channel. You're approaching a million followers there. You've got your content. You're clearly making a living out of that. How did you, yeah, how did you find your way into that? So I was, I was attending a lot of conferences about 12, 15 years ago. I would, I would go to everything that a friend had an event for or a friend of a friend would, you know, recommend. And I started seeing these people do things on YouTube. There was, there was sit-down podcasts. There was some podcasting that was becoming popular. And I saw YouTube as an opportunity. And as a car guy, my favorite show has always been Top Gear. You know, when, when those, three those three Muppets, Muppets got, got thrown, thrown off, off the show, show and they, they started, started recruiting, recruiting for new, for new uh, presenters. presenters. I actually applied for that. that. I have a video ah, somewhere um, <laughs> that I never published. <laughs> but I have, I have the actual, actual like, uh, minute-long requirement video that they wanted to see for that. And at the time, I had just got the YouTube channel and my plot was essentially to um, interview my friends in their success rides. There's lots of entrepreneurs uh, that are very successful in Toronto that I'm well aware of because of the trade organizations and the groups that I was in. So I thought to myself, well, 
I'll just mash up entrepreneurship and cars and interview entrepreneurs in their cars. So I did that for about four or five different episodes. And then I ran out of friends with cool cars. So I started talking about other things while I was driving, you know, cool cars. And I said, uh, you know, this is how you can handle lawyers in your business to get the most out of them. This is how I use parties to hire people. So I would start to bring people into my world with what I was doing with my business. Um, so that's how I got started with content creation. It's just that for me, it sort of pivoted in different directions because I would always pay attention to what people said in the comments back in those days, you know, as you do when the channel's smaller. And people started asking questions like they they seemed to rely on what I was doing and they wanted to book me for private consults and, and coaching. And one day some guy came along and he said, you should do a video on the kind of women to not date. I thought, well, that's interesting. I've got some experience there. So let's make that video. And then that blew up. And I sort of started talking about the dynamics around relationships and uh, people were asking questions around long term issues, divorce. I had been through a divorce. People were asking lots and lots of questions around that. And it seems like I've I've moved from cars to entrepreneurship to relationship stuff. And really the entire notion of it all just is enveloped with the idea of putting yourself first, making yourself your own mental point of origin, and really attacking life from the angle of becoming the best version of yourself. So understanding all of these things just sort of became conversations that I worked on. If I could put it this way, I probably made my wounds my work. So wounds that I had in divorce, wounds that I had in business, wounds that I had in relationship. I just talked about those in videos and people seem to like that. Yeah, I um, have seen that evolution of your channel. Um, you've, you've got a video there which I wanted to ask you about how mm. um, to shit test a woman. I've never heard that phrase before, being a Brit. Um, yeah. But why do you think so many people are asking for this content on... Um, you know, women and dating, where does this all come from, do you think? Things come from a lot of areas. I think that, I mean, there's this, there's this prevailing notion today that our granddads had to work half as hard for women that were twice as good as what we have available to us today, right? Women today have social media and even an average looking woman with filters and good makeup and lighting and a push-up bra can put out good photography on an Instagram and get the attention of a lot of people. They can use good photography on dating apps and get the attention of a lot of guys. Um, women get far, far more matches and attention on dating apps than what men do today. Um, about 80% of the women are struggling to get the attention of the top 20% of guys. And that means the rest of the guys are pretty much invisible. I mean, if they're a, a seven or eight out of 10 or lower, lower they're going to struggle to get the attention of attractive women that they want to be with in today's world. So there's a lot of, I mean, this is a large puzzle with hundreds of pieces. Um, and it's really difficult to know where to start. But it seems obvious to me at this stage that the reason why people have an appetite for this information is because what they've been given their entire, entire lives life hasn't, hasn't worked. worked. They've, been, They've told, been told just be a nice guy, be a, guy, be a shoulder, shoulder to cry on. on. Like how many guys, guys do you know that try to win the affection and the love of a woman by entering the friend zone? They just try to be their friend. And then when that completely goes sideways and then she runs off to try to be with Mr. Exciting and Mr. Reliable sitting there with his hands in his pocket, playing pocket pool, wondering why she's with Chad, you know, that night instead of him. So I think, I think, I think men, men and women, women in general, general, not just men, but I think men and women have been let down and lied to as far as what the other sex responds to 
and gets the results to where they're looking at that are aligned with their goals, you know, if I can put it that way. Mm. And um, what are those wounds in the relationships that you've had that you've been able to turn into this education? Well, I think, I think divorce is, is certainly one of them. You know, I talked about it in my book. I have a chapter in my book on why smart men don't marry today. Um, so anybody that hasn't been divorced doesn't know this, but you tend to sort of approach it from the angle of, right, I found somebody I love. She loves me. We've met each other's family. We've traveled. Uh, we're going to take some vows together and sickness and health and richer and poorer and blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And we'll raise a family. We'll be together forever and ever until kingdom come sort of thing. But it doesn't always work out that way. And marriage as a proposal for men, because when you get married today, you essentially invite the state into your home. Um, they become the governors of your relationships. They become the governor of your assets. They become the governor of what happens to you, your access to your own children, if you have to untie the knot. So things have changed dramatically and it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's misunderstood and you don't understand it until you go through it. And that's when the fog of war is lifted and you see what you deal with. So, I mean, if you took a classroom full of graduating students from high school um, and let them sit in a divorce court for an afternoon to watch how fathers got treated, I think you'd probably find if you interviewed them afterwards, there'd be a lot of interesting conversations and surprises that they would want to talk to you about. Um, but it's one of those things that there's not a lot of conversations about today. And so why don't smart men get married now then? There's not a lot of benefit to it, you know, at this point in time when it comes to Western marriage. Um, it's high risk and generally low reward for men. It's low risk and high reward for women. Um, women tend to marry across and up on the socioeconomic scale. They've always done that. It's, that's why women are called hypergamous. So that's not a, a bug. It's a feature of women. If they didn't marry competent men, if they didn't invite competent men or want to reproduce with competent men, the chances of them surviving or their offspring surviving would be quite low. So women tend to marry men of a higher caliber than themselves. That's why it's common for a $40,000 a year hairdresser to marry uh, Steve, the VP of the sales team at the large uh, Fortune 500 company. Um, so if the knot needs to be untied, she's going to be well looked after. Family law takes care of it. Unfortunately, it's, it's structured in such a way that it actually motivates women to behave quite badly if they have to untie the knot because if they go for control, which is custody of the children, then they get more money. So not only do they get the benefit of decision-making, unilateral decision-making without the father contributing to that, they also extract wealth and resources from him over a prolonged period of time. And what you, what guys usually find out happens during that period of time is they're alienated from their own children while their wealth is stolen from them and given to the mother. And now we have this problem today where most, most kids growing up, and you know, when I say most, it's not all, but it's about 43% because I think the last time I saw the uh, stats on it, but about close to half of households are single parent households, which means that there's one parent doing most of the child rearing. And in that case, it's generally speaking mothers because they get custody orders about 80% of the time still. And that's only for married couples. There's, of course, you know, mothers that become single mothers, whether by choice or by accident, but they go off on their own and they raise their kids by themselves. 
So you've got this entire generation now that's being raised with the absence of masculinity in the household. And that's very problematic. So back to the original question of why aren't smart men getting married? They're not, it's not that they're not having children. It's not that they're not, you know, passing on their name and their DNA. They're still finding ways to do that. It's just, they're not doing it under the guise of marriage anymore. They're, they're using prenuptial agreements. They're using contractual arrangements. They're using relocation, geolocation to move to places where laws aren't hostile towards fathers. That's how smart men do it now. So if there's a man with a woman and the woman's putting some pressure maybe, or wants to get married to the man, I'm looking at someone behind me, but I'm not going to mention his name. Mm -hmm. And maybe this person, you know, wants to still be with the woman, but doesn't want to get married. How does he navigate that situation? You just have to be firm. You have to be resolute. You have to put your foot down and say, I love you to bits. And I want to be with you for a very long time. But I do not want to invite the state into my household. I do not want to let the government decide what happens to our relationship, to our wealth, to our children and all of those things. Mm. And realistically, if she's a good woman, she should be okay with that. She should be absolutely fine with that. The only time that women absolutely lose their mind and get upset over it is if they're not there for the right reasons. If they're there for you because they love you and they want to be with you and they want to be a part of your life, whether or not they have access to your wealth after things don't work out or whether or not they have access or full rights to the children after things don't work out shouldn't matter. A good woman would be happy to just leave with what she came with. If people listening and watching are 30 years old or over, what advice would you give them to starting a business? It's a great question. Um, I've put a lot of thought in this. I actually have a course on the topic. I call it the school of entrepreneurship. And I think that you can engineer a very good business if you approach it from the right perspective. Um, there's, there's a notion of good businesses and bad businesses. There's, um, a guy that I followed years, years ago that used to podcast a lot, uh, Joe Polish, and he used to talk about easy, lucrative and fun businesses versus hard, annoying, lame and frustrating businesses. And the vast majority of people that create a business uh, that want to get into entrepreneurship generally create a hard, annoying, lame and frustrating business. They're not profitable. Uh, they're often difficult to run. They expose themselves to unnecessary risks, whether it's legal or it's um, regulatory. Um, they're location dependent, meaning they can't pick it up and move from, you know, go and move it to somewhere else and run it from anywhere else in the world. There's that's how most people run businesses. Most people create a business and they just employ themselves. There was a stat that I came across once and it's, it's something like um, 97 to 98 percent of businesses never crack a million dollars a year in annual sales. Most businesses are just people that filed their articles of incorporation. They got a bunch of business cards made that said founder and CEO, but maybe they, their wife, maybe two other people are, you know, the employees in the company, but they've basically created a business to go and employ themselves. So that's not the greatest idea. You can engineer a, a much better business if, you, if you're selling. Um, so, so an example of a half business would be physical products, right? Um, you have to manufacture them, you have to store them, you have to ship them, they get broken in shipping, they get lost in shipping, somebody steals a ship. There's all these extra layers of problems that occur when you move a physical product. 
Well, you don't have those layers of problems if you're moving an information product, do you? If you're selling a digital product, if you're selling a course, nothing gets returned in the mail. It always gets delivered when somebody checks out because it's in their inbox immediately. They get their password sort of things. It's a business that you can run from anywhere in the world. Like I said, if you're running an easy, lucrative and fun business, you could legitimately put a Starlink on your sailboat and run that from the middle of the Pacific Ocean on your way to a nice island um, and still have sales rolling in while you're asleep versus something that re relies on bricks and mortar, which relies on you opening a door, which could potentially be shut down or locked out during the next scandemic or climate lockdown or whatever the next lockdown happens yeah, to be that they're going to pull, pull on, on us. us. Anybody with a physical location could suffer the consequences of getting into that business. But people don't really think about that when it comes to entrepreneurship. It's only somebody that's done it for a while or somebody that has had several exits that, that contemplate all these different layers. And that's really why I put the School of Entrepreneurship together to sort of break all these components down so people understand, look, if you want to get into business and run your own business, that's a great idea. It's probably the best way to have optimal freedom, flexibility, and earning potential. Uh, but at least do it in a clever way. How do you sell anything to anyone? I think, you'd, I think you'd probably get a much better answer from a guy like Alex Hermosi, wouldn't you? But it seems to be um, putting value in a place where there's great demand. So if you're talking to an Eskimo, selling him ice cubes probably isn't the best idea. Selling him fur probably is a better idea. And how do you turn content into cash flow? I think it's with the attention of the audience. So I create a lot of content. I get 7 million views a month on the stuff that I put out on all the platforms. Um, you can then say, I have a supplement line, right? I have a book. I have a podcast. I have coaching opportunities. I have my men's community. I have my school of entrepreneurship. As you go about the business of creating content. Um, you just insert a quick little sales pitch. The way that I usually do it is my entire video. Like if you watch my re recent videos in my car on the entrepreneurs and cars channel, pretty much always at the very end, I never do it at the beginning. I never do it in the middle, but at the very end for the retain watchers that are more loyal. If you enjoyed the video pinned in the top comment, there's a bunch of useful links, things that I'm affiliated with, including my podcast, my book, my supplement line, check them out. And that's all you really have to do. And people will go to that. So having having an audience is a powerful tool in today's world and you never had that opportunity 20 30 years ago there was gatekeepers to all that if you wanted to have an audience you had to be selected to be on it on a tv show you had to be selected to be in a movie now all you have to do is have good information useful information or entertain people and you can build an audience on just about any platform by creating value that way and then you can sell your audience things right do you ever have an internal battle whereby maybe this content you'd love to share. It's your art and heart and soul, but your intuition tells you it's not going to get many views versus um, you know there's some subjects, some titles, some keywords that could go viral, but maybe you feel like you're selling yourself out a bit. I'm just going to tell you I have that internal battle all the time. Do you? Yeah, there's no question that you can you can uh, manufacture virality. You can. You can absolutely do that with the right thumbnail title and content. Uh, there's lots of people that do that today. I see that a lot recently in the last couple of years, especially in the uh, dating sphere, where 
you know, you have a podcast table and they put a, a bunch of entitled bratty women on one side and then a couple of guys in the room and then they proceed to essentially expose them for their delusion. You know, it seems to be the way that it goes. So they, so they use them to make an example out of them. They usually give them alcohol and a few other, like there's a few ingredients that they mix into this to engineer this virality. But it seems obvious as day to me when I see it exactly what they're doing. So yeah, there are ways that you can do that. Um, you're selling your soul to the devil to some degree though, aren't you? So there has to be a certain amount of purity. Like I have playlists, I have two different podcasts, which I still run, which don't get nearly the same views as the in-car videos that I do on my Entrepreneurs in Cars channel that my editor puts a, a graphic thumbnail on that's going to get their attention. But I still do them because I enjoy them. I do podcast interviews you know, because I enjoy them, because I like the conversation. I like hosting people on my platform and talking about stuff that I'm interested in. And I like being on other people's platform and answering their questions and learning about them too. So do they get the same views? Absolutely not. But I don't care. Um, is passive income real or is passive income a scam? Well, can you earn, pa can you earn income while you're sleeping? Yes. Is it, is it completely passive, meaning you don't have to do anything that's on autopilot? I've never seen that. There's always some inputs that you have to put into passive income. I'm doing that in quotation marks. But there's always some inputs you have to put into it to make sure the money keeps flowing. There's nothing that's automatic in that, in that sense that I've seen. Does society need more billionaires? Does society need more billionaires? Or less, because well, there's a plenty of people saying it. We need less the left, maybe. Yeah, I don't know about that. That's you know, that, there's this prevailing notion that you that you can take the wealth of the richest people in the world. If you took the wealth of the most successful billionaires out there, put it in a big pile and then divided it amongst the population. I have a strong suspicion that that wealth would find its way back in the pockets of the billionaires that you stole it from probably within about four or five years, most of it anyway. So I think that's that's a delusional concept that you know billionaires are bad and you have to steal their wealth and you have to redistribute. So, so there's that. Um, do we need good billionaires? Yeah, we need more Elon Musk of the world. I think we need less Bill Gates and a lot more Elon Musk's. I don't think Bill Gates has done anything productive for the world aside from Microsoft. What he's done in the last few years with uh, contributions to the whole scandemic thing, I'm not pleased with that guy. I think he's I think he's a menace to society at this point, and he should just retire and leave economics alone and culture and everything else alone. He's buying. He's 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 the largest landholder now in the United States, farmland holder, independent farmland holder. He's he's bought up that much farmland over the last number of years. So I don't know what this guy's plans are, but we need good billionaires. We need more Elon Musk of the world and less of the Bill Gates. Is there not an argument that Bill Gates has done a lot for various um, diseases and reducing them? I don't think so. No. What has he done? Apparently, almost single-handedly reduced polio to virtually nothing. I've not seen that in my backyard. No. All I've seen is what he's done with this last scandemic and how he played such a strong role in the vaccination protocols, the encouragement that everybody takes it, the, you know, the mandates, the lockdowns. He was he was part and parcel of a lot of those things with uh, Fauci and all the other world leaders that subscribed to the to the new world order that they were trying to purport. So um, I'm not familiar with anything he's done with polio. But then again, I've not seen polio in my lifetime. Why 
Do you think that Bill Gates didn't just stick to tech? Well, he made such a vast fortune in it, and it seems like his, um, you know, his his position in the company ran its course. They didn't need him, and I think at some point as an entrepreneur, you get bored of your business too, don't you? Um, you know, I I ran my debt settlement business for 12, 15 years before I realized that eh, I think I've had enough. You know, I want to move on to some other things. Mm. So. I, I don't see a lot of large, you know, billion dollar companies keep the founder around for a lifetime. It doesn't seem to happen very often. I'm, sh- I'm sure at some point Elon Musk will find a way to release himself of his duties to Twitter and Tesla and the like as well and, and focus on other projects that are going to demand more of his time. And why do you prefer someone like Elon Musk over someone like Bill Gates? Well, he's solving real problems that matter. You know, like uh, one of the things that I that I admire him for, and he's not a perfect man. Like I've I've certainly criticized Elon Musk over the years too. But you know, for for us to survive as a species, we're gonna have to be multiplanetary, right? If there's a giant meteor or a rock or a comet or something that's finding its way towards Earth, that's an extinction level type of event if it's big enough, and it's gonna wipe out a good chunk of the population. So he's doing things for the betterment of humanity. Uh, Neuralink is another project that he's working on, which he gets some criticism for. But I think the the inherent baseline nature of what he's trying to use that for is going to improve lives as well. Uh, I'm not sold on the whole electric car thing. I'm still a big petrol head and I like the internal combustion engine, but <laughs> I see where it's going. And I actually prefer the electrification of petroleum powered cars. So there's that that seems to be working. But yeah, the, the, I think overall he's he's contributing net positive to society, if I can put it that way. Hmm. Do you think we have free speech in the world right now? No. Why not? A- absolutely not. Um, we have some platforms that are improving that, like with what Musk has done with Twitter. Again, that's, that's a positive contribution that I see him making to society. Uh, I've seen enough evidence since he's taken the reins of that business in which he's exposed what happened during the last election, how Twitter was used to manipulate us during the scandemic. Um, you don't have free speech, generally speaking, on, on most platforms. I've been, um, there's certain things that I can't say and do on YouTube, you know, for example, which I could say and do on another platform, maybe like Rumble, you know, for example. So you cannot speak as if you and I were sitting in a pub having a pint, just having a, a conversation, you have to change the conversation when you broadcast on their platform, because at the end of the day, it's their platform and they get to decide whether or not you get to say or do certain things on it, even though it's your content. Why do you think people, men like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson have become so viral, let's say? I think it's an absence of fathers in the household, to be honest with you. And in some cases, it's it's fathers that have been pushed out of the household by difficult mothers. In some cases, they're just loser fathers that shouldn't have been fathers to begin with, or they were like pieces of furniture in the household. But either way, there's there's the removal of strong, conventional, masculine men in the household. So you've got this generation of rudderless young boys and men that are looking for somebody to look up to. And a Jordan Peterson, when he says something like, stand up straight, clean your room, 
um, and you know, speak with some confidence, for example, gets the attention. Right? When a guy like Andrew Tate, a big, strong kickboxer with a bunch of fast cars and beautiful women speaks, he's going to get the attention of young, impressionable men that are looking to replicate that, that want the fast cars, the watches, and the beautiful women. Right? So there's a vacuum. And it was, it was created by, if you want to call it, you know, the matrix or whatever. Uh, we, we've changed the dynamic in which children grow up in households now dramatically, dramatically. In, in my grandfather's era, there was no divorce. There was, uh, there was always a father around. You know, he was the authority in the household. He had responsibility to the household along with authority in the household to run it as he saw fit, generally speaking. You don't have authority anymore in a household as a man. You have responsibility, as you always did, but they've stripped away the authority. And isn't that the very definition of slavery? Losing your authority but having responsibility? So you've got a lot of these young men today that are looking for guidance. They're looking for a strong masculine role model. You're attracted to that. I, I remember vividly as a child watching things like Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer and thinking, wow, that's impressive. I want to look like that guy when I get older, right? And I had a father in the household, right? So the absence of, of having a father means that you're going to be seeking these strong alpha type of men because you, it's like gravity, man. It just sucks you into them. Right. Just like a beautiful woman sucks you into their gravity, a strong, virtuous man that looks like he's doing something with his life and is competent and is influential and is interesting will get the attention of other people. And that's what Peterson and Tate, you know, offer. And do you think Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson, their net benefit for humanity? I believe so. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't listen to Jordan Peterson when it comes to advice on love and marriage. Um, one of the things that he disappointed me in was that he published this uh, three-part series, I think it was on Daily Wire on marriage. And I thought, well, that was interesting because I followed him for a while. I have a chapter in my book on why smart men avoid marriage. So I wanted to hear what he had to say on it. So I subscribed and I listened to it. And it's like, it was all just man up, don't be a, a wimp, get married, you know, do it in front of a church and the other people that you love. You, you know, you just can't date a woman. You just can't live with a woman. It's degenerate, um, blah, blah, blah sort of thing. So I wouldn't listen to Jordan Peterson when it comes to marriage advice because there was nothing in there about, hey, uh, does she have the bright triad you know, features of good woman? Uh, does she have a personality disorder? Uh, is she a single mom with four kids from three different fathers? Like, there's, there's things that you need to contemplate before you invite marriage into your life if you want to have an, uh, a fun and easy marriage or a fun and easy relationship you know, with a woman. So... I think he misses the boat in certain areas. It's the same thing with Tate. Like, I don't agree with everything that Andrew says. I like the guy. I think he's funny. I would love to do a supercar rally with him, of course. But does he get everything right? No, I don't think so. But I think he's a force, generally speaking, for good. For men for men and women, actually. You know, if I can put it that way. Mm. Is ego the enemy? No. Ryan, Ryan Halliday wrote a book with that title, didn't he? Yeah. And why... Do you think people like him write books like that then if you don't think ego is the enemy? Well, he's a great marketer. He knows how to title a book and uh, push it out. So I've liked his other books in the past, but I came to realize that you have to have a certain amount of ego to do anything in life. You know, you've, you've got to have a... Uh, 
how can I put this? You know, you've got to have a strong impression of your capabilities as a man and have some ego if you're going to go out there and be a force of good, a force of awesomeness, of like putting your dent in the universe, whatever that happens to be. You're going to have to have a certain degree of ego to do that. And I think that we're now getting to the point where when we're dealing with ego is the enemy and we're and we're black labeling conventionally masculine traits, which are now being called toxic masculinity. I think you're running into some difficult areas. That's where Ryan lost me with that book. I read it halfway through and I'm like, this is this is turning into garbage. Right. And I know his political views and you know that sort of thing. So maybe there's some of that infused into the writings of the book. But I do believe as a guy, you have to have a certain degree of ego if you want to get anything done. When was the last time you cried and, and why was it? Uh, when was the last time I cried? A while ago. Uh, I, think, I think when my girlfriend lost her father, actually, because I was pretty close to the guy. Yeah. Would you rather have one million cash handed to you now by me or one million engaged um, rich super fans on your social media of choice and why? Rich as in you rich, not rich as in got a lot of money rich. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's interesting. interesting. So, so would I rather have the money or would I rather have the attention? attention? Yeah, engaged attention. You know, their fans are yours. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that the audience is probably more valuable than the money. Money's actually not that not that hard to make. Mm. People, people, people don't have a very good, good relationship with money or an understanding with money. And, and once you understand how to make it and, and how to create value and what it is and how attention is so valuable, um, then you start to put the pieces together a lot easier. Money is quite easy to make, especially if you have a million ra raving fans. Um, can money buy happiness? Yes. Yeah. Anybody that says money can't buy happiness is shopping at the wrong store. <laughs> yeah, I usually find it's broke people or billionaires that say that. And billionaires have so much of it and yeah. broke people have never experienced it. Why do you think well, money can buy What's that? Yeah, why do you think that money can buy happiness? Well, everybody fancies something, don't they? Like, I'm a car guy. I've got my McLaren. I just bought another car I'm taking delivery of later on this week. So money does in fact buy happiness if you know where to shop. You may like watches, you may like handbags and purses, you may like real estate, you may like travel, you may like sailing. You can't, okay, let me just correct myself. As a man, you can't go and get and do those things for free. You have to have resources to go and acquire them and do it. If you're a beautiful woman, you can spend as much time as you want on a 120 foot uh, super yacht if you have the right connections, right? Because men invite beauty onto their, you know, into their lives to go and participate in those sorts of things. So if you're a man, you can certainly buy happiness with money. What's the car you've got on order? It's a surprise, I don't wanna give it away. <laughs> what about if we publish it after? <laughs> um, okay, all right then, because we both have a passion for cars, that's how I yeah. found you, Rich. So. Um, I don't like bad-mouthing anyone or anything. Um, I like to keep it balanced. That being said, I've never owned a McLaren because so many of my friends who've owned McLarens have said how awful they are to own. Yeah. They're beautiful to look at. I mean, I, I did a podcast with Carl Hartley, who has, um, is the son of Tom Hartley, Cars, and 
off the spot, I bought the 911, the one I told you about, the 1989 one, and I almost bought a 675 LT. It looked beautiful. Mm. I, I WhatsApp my um, business partner who said, don't buy McLarens, their service is terrible. Um, you have one little bump, the carbon's gone, it's 20 grand, and they're just awful. You own a McLaren, so let's talk. And by the way, if you want me to edit this out of the show afterwards, I will. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I find that interesting because I, because I followed that same train of thought as well before I bought my car. Um, I was looking at Ferraris. I was always a Ferrari guy. I never really liked Lambos, um, although I do like all supercars now at this point. But I found that Ferrari tr treats you like a piece of garbage when you walk in their dealership. Um, they treat their customers badly. They, they even try to sue their customers. There's been many cases where they've tried to sue their customers for wrapping the car in a way that they didn't appreciate after they've taken delivery of the car and they own it. So, you know, I started looking around at other brands and I'd always been interested in McLaren. I remember the F1 when Tiff Needle took it for a rip around the track. And I was in London in the 90s at that time. And one of the things I wanted to go see was the one and only McLaren dealership in the world. So I've known of the brand in the car for a while. Uh, but yeah, they they were saying that it's a terrible brand. It's not reliable. It's going to be in the shop. Things break, blah, blah, blah. That's not been my experience. And when I started going to the dealer, I found the dealer was very receptive. When I started talking to owners, I found the owners had a great experience with the car. Um, so after talking to people and spending some time with them and having dinners with them and doing rallies with them, I mean, if you're doing a three or 4,000 kilometer rally and there's McLarens on the ra rally and none of them are breaking down, then clearly there's something wrong with that narrative, isn't there? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like the whole... You know, the whole notion that, you know, men are told to just be a nice guy and, you know, be her friend and, you know, be humble and all that sort of stuff. And women will just find you attractive and that'll be enough. That's also not true. You know, so so there's lies everywhere in the world, you know, when it comes to many different things. And I think that McLarens are wonderful cars. Uh, they can be somewhat temperamental. Like I've had, you know, warning lights pop off from time to time, but never had any mechanical failures uh, I've never not been able to drive the car. It's never not started for me. Um, I think the extent of, aside from uh, uh, like sensor problems, you, you know, again, it's random things like the air brake won't go down because the sensor needs to get reset. No big deal. You can still drive the car. You just drop it off the dealer and they'll take care of it quickly. Um, so there's that. The extent of the stuff that goes wrong on the 720 is really the glass roofs. So if you have the coupe and you have glass roofs, they do tend to crack. They didn't make them thick enough. You know, they're always trying to minimize weight, mm. you know, you know, in their cars like the 600 LT is known for cracking windshields because they made the windshield too thin to save a couple grams. Right. So the, the roof panels on my car had to get changed about three times before I said, right, that's enough. Swap them out for the, um, I can't remember the, uh, actual material that it's made of, but it's basically like this plastic. So it's a hard top roof now instead. Right. And they did it for me. You know, there was no pushback. Yeah. They've always taken care of everything under warranty. They've gone above and beyond to uh, service me. So I've had a great experience. I'm going to continue to buy their cars. I think they're wonderful. Mm. And nothing performs like them. Like I've, I've been on rallies with every single car brand out there, Ferraris, Lambos, Ford, GT40s, uh, and nothing on the road goes like a McLaren, especially on the highway. The, the McLaren is an absolute weapon on the highway. It's just a missile. Mm, yeah. 
I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I always like to talk to people who own them um, because everyone has their own theory. What really interested me, how much they've dropped. So Ferrari's gone up. I mean, I've got a Lamborghini Aventador. It hasn't gone down in value for three years. First yeah. two years I owned it, it, it was like a ski slope. Yeah. Um, so when all these cars are really holding their value, McLarens, you can get them for a bargain. Yeah, and I think it's an incredible, it, it is the absolute bargain of the supercar world for what you get. And the stories about them not being reliable or working properly are absolutely not true. They they have the most incredible technology. They drive, there's no other car that I'd rather drive. Like I've driven Ferraris, I've driven Lambos, I've driven Porsches, like a 911, a 992, 911 versus a 720. Yeah, it'll be faster off the line but I don't want to drive it on a rally, right? The 720 just drives better. It steers better. It's better balanced. It's faster on the highway. Um, but yeah, you're right. They do drop in value. The LTs tend to hold their values a little bit better though, don't they? Um, so 675 LT. So as an example, I almost bought one of two 675 LTs here in Canada. There's only two here with the roof scoop, uh, which I think was a $50,000 factory option. Um, for $350,000. Um, the friend of mine that was the manager of the dealer told me, if you're going to use it for rallies, don't get a 675 LT with a roof scoop. It's going to be too loud. It's uncomfortable. You're, you're going to hate it after a while. It's a track car. So I said, fine, I got the 720. That same car, a year and a half later, is now selling for $500,000. Okay, it's back on the market. It's up for sale. So I missed the boat on that. So you can put money into a McLaren and see it go up in value if you buy the right car. And it seems like the LTs seem to be the better picks for that. So um, Harry, who's my um, head producer behind, we always talk about cars because we're little boys and we always talk about our favorite classics and our favorite dailies and that kind of thing. So um, if you could have one daily driver, what would it be? What's the best daily driver on the market? Car, car or SUV? SUV? Yeah, well, you can choose it. Any, um, anything. Yeah, but it's you know it's got to be you got to be able to drive the thing daily. You know, put your kids in it, do all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's going to have to have four doors, so you're probably either going to want a. I would I would say something along the line of a M5 AMG Mercedes, or RS Audi. You can't go wrong with those. Lexus makes a more reliable, probably comfortable car, but they're not exciting to drive. Okay. And then classic, what one classic? You're only allowed to own one classic, what's it gonna be? Oh, I can tell you right now, it'd have to be a Boss 1970 Mustang. Right. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would love to resto mod a 1970 Boss Mustang and put a Ferrari V12 in it or a Lambo V12 in it. So it's got the old muscular American look, but it sounds like a banshee flying out of hell when you're on the gas. <laughs> and, and what's your money is no object? One car. I'd have the Gordon Murray uh, fan car. I, I can't remember what it's called. What is it? The T50? I don't know. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's called the T50. It's a three seater. You know, that car is something else, man. If I could, you know, if I could have got my hands on, one of those, I would have gotten one because the way that it was designed and built, it's an absolute work of art. 3.9 liter, naturally aspirated V12, manual transmission, three-seater configuration. It's basically, he basically took the formula from the McLaren F1 back in the 90s, modernized it, fixed all the deficiencies and improved everything. 
and you can get it for 3 million instead of 20 million that the F1 sells for now. So I wouldn't be surprised if that Gordon Murray fan car is worth well over 25, 30 million dollars in about 20 years. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made? The biggest mistake, I think the biggest mistake you can make as a man is, is marrying the wrong woman. What's the biggest regret you have? The biggest regret? Not believing in myself younger, not taking greater risks sooner. I think that, I think it's more prevalent today than what it was when I was a kid because I think there was more accountability and, and self-ownership when I was young. Um, and my father always encouraged me to, you know, be the best that you can be sort of thing. But I think a lot of us still play not to lose. And especially in your twenties, you should be playing to win, like playing to win and playing not to lose sound like two very similar things, but playing to win is very, very different than playing not to lose. Most people play not to lose. And I think that's what I did for the most part of my twenties. And I wish I was playing to win sooner. What's your most brutal life lesson? Brutal life lesson, I think, would probably have to be over-investing into a woman and children that aren't mine. Ego-investing into a single mother was probably the most brutal lesson because betrayal comes in, in many forms, but when you put time, effort, energy, and resources into a woman and kids that aren't yours, and that can and does go sideways for a lot of guys, the betrayal hurts. You know, so that, so that would have been probably one of the most brutal lessons that I had to learn. The future. What are you, A, most excited about and B, most scared about for the future? I'm just excited for the future because it exists. You know, the fact that we have a future, that we have time, that I have oxygen in my lungs, that I can do more things, that I, I should have plenty of life ahead of me is exciting to me. Um, knowing, knowing what I know now, Again, you know, I wish I knew this stuff when I was in my 20s, but there you have it. But yeah, I am excited for the future. Yeah. And nothing scares you about the future? Nah, not anymore. Not anymore. This show is called Disruptors. What does the word disruptive mean to you? I think it, I think it means doing things that others are unwilling to do to change the, the tide, to change the course of where things are, are going. And whether that's for you or for people around you in your immediate circle or beyond that, uh, I think that's what a disruptor does. I'm, I'm certainly a disruptor on YouTube with the conversations that I have on my channel because I, I certainly have to lean into areas that are uncomfortable and I shine a light on topics and conversations that some people just aren't willing to have. And where can we find out more about you, Rich? Follow your work? Give us some shout outs on your channels, your products maybe? Uh, best place to start is my website. It's just richcooper.ca and you'll find links to my book, my podcast, my courses, my supplement line. If you want to book me for private consults or coaching, it's, it's all there. Rich, it's been very much a pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me.